Welcome to Fucking Cancelled, a podcast about what the left is like, what to do about it, and what it'll be like once you've done it. In today's episode, we discuss attachment theory in the nexus, the importance of secure relationships, and the role of disorganized attachment in fundamentalism. Yeah, welcome back to fucking cancelled. Welcome to fucking cancelled. Um, so before we start, um, we wanted to quickly just remind people about our Patreon, um, patreon.com slash fucking cancelled with two L's. Yep. And we're going to be, um, trying out something new. We've done it, I think like once or twice already, but, um, it's something new that we're trying, which is that we're doing live, um, Q and A's on our Patreon. Um, we've never announced it on the pod before, so we thought we would, uh, give listeners a chance to know about it ahead of time. So, um, on June 21st at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, um, we're going to be doing a Q&A for patrons. And so it's basically like just like an hour where we're going to be recorded, answering your questions about anything related to the stuff that we talk about on the pod. And if you can't make it to the live, it will be recorded so you can still watch the the replay of it. And um, if you have questions but you can't make it to the live... We've set up like a little post on our Patreon where you can go there and ask the questions. So we will answer those questions during the live. So yeah, it's pretty straightforward. You can just go to our Patreon and book around and you'll find the post and, and explains how everything works. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so that's June 21st um, at 7 p.m. And then the other thing I wanted to announce um, is just that I've been looking for a place um, to put my writing online for free. I also have a Patreon where I post my writing, but like I wanted you know, a platform where I could share my writing for free. And I've decided on Substack, so I've just started a Substack. Um, my newsletter is called The Wild World Itself is Holy. And if you are interested, you can go to clementinemorgan.substack.com. And basically, if you sign up, you will get all the new writing that I do in your inbox. So we'll put the links in the show notes. Yeah. Um, so yeah, without further ado, um, we're going to be talking about attachment theory today. Now, um, this is going to be like a little bit of a different episode or a different kind of episode because um, Clementine is the one who's like extremely, extremely well informed about this topic. Um, I know quite a bit about it from just like osmosis, <laughs> from just like being around Clementine all the time. Um, but Clementine's really the expert. So I'm going to be sort of like interviewing Clementine about this topic, um, which uh, I think is going to be cool. And, you know, at some point in the future, like I'm sure we're going to do a kind of like reverse version of this um, when we're talking about something that I might know a bit more about or something. Um, but yeah, I'm excited to get into it. Yeah. And like, basically we're going to do probably a few episodes where I'm going to bring my knowledge of like attachment theory, nervous system stuff, and also trauma because in my other life, I'm kind of like a trauma educator. So I have a lot of ideas about how that body of knowledge that I hold intersects with the ideas that we talk about on this podcast. And so basically we wanted to find a way to like unpack some of that. So, yeah. So, uh, Clementine. All right. (laughs) What is attachment theory? All right. So basically attachment theory is a body of knowledge, um, that is based on 
this research, um, basically there was this study that was done that's called, that was called um, the strange situation. And it was a study in which they looked at like the reaction of infants to various things that their caregivers did. If their caregiver like left the room, like how did the infant um, respond? And they found that infants responded in these sort of like predictable and typical ways and that these these responses fell into categories. There's been tons and tons of research on this. I'm not going to like wholly unpack everything about attachment theory in this um, episode, but we will put like some resources in the show notes for people if you want to read up more about it. But basically like the general idea is that our relationships with our caregivers, especially in infancy, but our attachment styles can change throughout our lives, but especially in infancy, it sets forth like a... um, a style of relating um, that we carry with us into adulthood. And it's based on like an evolutionary model. So the idea is, is that for human beings, because we are social animals who don't have like scary claws and fangs to protect ourselves, we like heavily rely on our relationships to keep ourselves safe and to have our needs met. So we've actually evolved, um, like strategies for maintaining relationships and this is like obviously especially true for infants like the species wouldn't the species wouldn't survive if there wasn't like this strong drive for infants and caregivers to like attach to each other because you can't just leave a human baby like on its own like the baby won't survive right so like we had to evolve like attachment as like a sort of like inherent drive in the human species and then it's like if um, if that infant's needs are not being met like consistently, the infant is going to adapt in various ways to try to either get those needs met or to cope with the fact that the needs are not being met. And so that is where like the different attachment styles come in. Right, that, that makes sense. Does that make sense? Okay. That makes sense. So it's a it's a theory that is just talking about what those different attachment styles are and how they come about. And yeah, and how they come about, and then how they like manifest. Also in adults. Okay, so you said there's three different kinds. Um, there's actually four different attachment styles. Tell me about the attachment styles. <laughs> okay. So, um, so the first attachment style is secure attachment. And so this is what happens if everything went right. So, like, if you had, you know, an infant who, like, when the infant cries, the parent is, like, attuned and is, like you know, making eye contact with the baby and is, like, able to, like, meet the baby's needs most of the time, um, that child develops secure attachment. And what that means is that the child really has internalized a belief that there is someone to depend on. And so when the child starts to get older, the child will start to explore their environment, always knowing that there's that safety to come back to. And so, like, they have, like, the courage to, like, take little risks or, like, explore new areas because they know that that secure attachment is there, right? And if they get frightened or something happens, they return to the safety of the caregiver and then they, um, they, once they've regulated, they, like, go back out into the world and are exploring again. So people with a secure attachment style, when they grow up, like, they're both comfortable with closeness and they're comfortable with, like, being on their own. They, like, generally feel like they can depend upon the people that they care about. They feel, like, safe and secure in their relationships. Um, and so that is the secure attachment style. And then there's three types of um, insecure attachment. Okay. So, basically, if things did not go perfectly, if things did not go 100% well... Which is often. Which is a lot of the time, Yeah. Um, you will develop one of these other ones. So 
The first is called Anxious Preoccupied. And so this is when the infant is basically getting their needs met some of the time. So like the needs and the achievement is happening some of the time and then other times it's not. And so the infant learns that it's an effective strategy to keep crying and crying and like seeking that um, that attachment, right? So they will be like demanding um, because they're like, sometimes when I cry, my needs get met. And so I'm going to keep crying. I'm going to keep trying to seek that um, that uh, that security. But basically... What this means is that because it's like um, it's not consistent, even when the child does have the caregiver there, the child doesn't totally relax because the child is always concerned about like when is it going to go away again and like how do I keep it? And so people with an anxious preoccupied attachment style, when they grow up, they tend to be, well, it's right in the name, they tend to be anxious <laughs> and preoccupied <laughs> with their relationships. So um, they can be, like, really fixated. They can be, like, really intense. Um, and they're always worried about, like, losing their relationship. And they don't have that same sense of safety that I talked about with the secure attachment where they can just go out into the world and explore because they're constantly preoccupied with whether or not that secure attachment, like, whether they're going to be able to come back to that attachment when when they need it. So that would be anxious preoccupied. Then we have another um, type that's called dismissive avoidant, and it's sometimes just called avoidant. And so in this case, the infant um, basically cried and realized that like, no matter how much the infant cried, like they consistently were not getting their needs met in a more ongoing way. There was like a lack of attunement, like some form of neglect, or just like generally speaking, the the caregivers were not actually able to like connect with their infant. And so the child learns, I'm not going to have my needs met. And so instead of continuously trying in the way that the anxious preoccupied does, the avoidant totally shuts down and like kind of dissociates from that need and just totally turns off the the need for attachment and that doesn't mean that they feel fine like they're actually experiencing a lot of distress in that but they're trying to like basically press that distress down because it is more distressing to actively want something that they feel they can't depend upon and so as adults people with a dismissive avoidance style they tend to withdraw they tend to be um like have a harder time with intimacy um get more freaked out if relationships become more intimate or more intense um, and they tend to be less emotionally available. So that is dismissive avoidant. And then finally, the third um, insecure attachment style is called disorganized. And sometimes people call this fearful avoidant, but I don't actually love that term for it. And so basically, the reason I don't love the term for it is because it makes it sound like it's a type of avoidant. And it's actually more complicated than that. But basically, the dismissive avoidant is the child that when... Not dismissive. Oh, sorry. Yeah, disorganized. disorganized. Um, thank you. The the disorganized um, the disorganized child is the one who the parent was frightening in some kind of way. So whether this is like an abusive parent or just a parent whose nervous system is like super dysregulated themselves, um, the child is afraid of the caregiver, and so when that happens there is a dilemma that is going on where the source of like comfort and the source of safety, the source of like, you know, all of your human needs is also a source of like 
threat and fear and terror. And so this creates disorganized attachment. And disorganized attachment is a whole uh, complex thing. Um, I'm actually teaching a workshop on this soon. But basically for disorganized people, their behavior can be really, really confusing because their attachment style is literally disorganized. And they move back and forth between strategies that the anxious preoccupied um, style uses and the dismissive avoidance style uses. So they might like pursue and then withdraw. They might like show a lot of interest and then show no interest. Um, They might be like really anxious preoccupied in some relationships and then really dismissive avoidant in others. And then all throughout this, they tend to have a very dysregulated nervous system. So that is the basic one-on-one of the attachment styles. It was very thorough. Thank you very much. Um, So you've talked already about how um, these relationships and attachments are very important in like an evolutionary setting Mm -hmm. and like when bonding between like an infant and its caregivers. Um, How is this relevant in a modern context and also how is this relevant um, uh, to socialism? Oh, I wasn't expecting that question. Okay. It was a little bit of a a curveball. (laughs) Okay. So interesting. Um, So you're asking me how it's, relevant in a modern context and then how it's relevant to socialism. Yeah. Like why is this like a fundamental thing we need to be thinking about? Okay. So, I mean, there's lots of reasons, but basically the thing is, is that human beings like fundamentally need relationships, right? And it's not just children and babies who do. Um, like there's been tons of studies on this. It shows that shows that like, um, adults really, are able to regulate their nervous systems so much better when they are with someone who they love and they trust. Um, and there's like, I'm like, now I'm kind of like citing a study and I'm, I can't remember where I read it, but I'll try to think of where I read it and then I'll put it. In sure, yeah, we'll find it. Um, but basically like there was a study and there's like been tons of studies like this. Right. But there was a study where basically like they put someone, I think they were in an MRI scanner when they were doing this, but basically like they, they told them that like they were going to have, um, they were going to experience some pain. Like they were like, we're going to do something to you that's going to hurt physically. Um, and so like the person was anticipating pain, right? And right. then they watched what was going on in their brain. And they did that with both like a person on their own and then like a person who was holding the hand of like their partner. Mm. And they found that like the distress for the person who was holding the hand with, of the partner is like way, way, way less. And oh, I mean, yeah. like, I think that this... Even when I visualize it, I feel like more calm. Right. It's way less stressful. Yeah, and yeah. it's like, I think this is like kind of obvious in a certain way because it's like most of us know like whoever it is that we feel most safe with, like, of course, if we're going to go through something scary, if there's something distressing happening, we want that person to be there. Like that's for a, sure. a pretty, you know, universal human experience. Um, and I guess like where this ties in with social socialism is that like, under capitalism and under like especially neoliberal capitalism like we're we're highly in this like individualistic kind of culture where people are expected to kind of pull themselves up by their bootstraps and like meet their own needs um and And relationships are like really deprioritized in a lot of ways like there's like certain types of relationships that are like um valued but like really most kinds of relationships that we had in the past um are have been dismantled yeah absolutely and so you know, and we're not encouraged, first of all, we're not encouraged to, like, really prioritize that or to, like, 
put huge amounts of energy into it. And relationships require a lot of energy to like do them well, but we're also not taught skills about how to actually do these things well. Um, and it's actually, especially when you take attachment theory into account and you understand that like people are not operating from the same position with this, right? Like because of our prior experiences, our relationship to relationships is going to vary, right? And so we're going to respond to the potential threat of like feeling like our relationships are threatened in different kinds of ways, right? Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that's like really important to know about this is that like when you are an infant, like losing the relationship to your primary caregiver is literally a threat of death. Like it's a life and death situation because if you don't have your caregiver, you're going to die. Like you literally can't defend yourself. You're an infant. Right. And so, like, kind of hardwired into the human nervous system is this imperative towards relationships. And obviously, as we grow up, you know, and we become adults, that imperative is not as strong as it was when we were infants. And especially if we have a secure attachment style, we're much more able to, like, tolerate being away from our attachments and then knowing that we can come back to them, right? Right. But for people with insecure attachment styles, being, like, being away or, like, the threat of that relationship being... um not available is like really, really dysregulating, even for the dismissive avoidant, but in a different way. Um, and so it's important to know that because it's like attachment stuff is playing out all the time in our relationships with people. And sometimes it can be hard to understand why people are reacting in the ways that they're reacting, especially with like an anxious, preoccupied person or, um, which is like, seems really over the top. Like, but it's because the nervous system is literally giving off signals of like a life and death situation, right? Right, right? And so that's really important to think about. And when you, um, I feel like we'll probably do like a whole other episode on the nervous system, like specifically. But if you think about things like um, political organizing and you want to think about people, um, you know, showing up to do political organizing and you want them to have their critical thinking skills online and be able to like, you know, talk through disagreements and, like, have important dialogue, like... Mm-hmm. Like, engage rationally. Yeah, it's very hard to do that if you literally feel like you're dying. Right, You know, right, for sure. And so we need to understand the way that the nervous system is playing out for people and the way that, like, attachment is playing out in relationships. So we need relationships. Um, we are living in a time and a place that, like, puts, like, huge stresses on our, like, natural human, like, ability to form relationships... We also, many of us are struggling with these like certain types of attachment styles that maybe have been evolutionarily useful, um, but can be sort of dysfunctional in certain contexts. Well, they're like, they're maladaptive, right? It's like they served a purpose in infancy, Mm. you know, it was the best shot that the infant had, you know, to, to either get the needs met or to cope with the needs not being met. Sure. Yeah. But like as adults, it's like, we actually have way more tools at our disposal. So that's why it's like considered maladaptive because it's like, you're using a strategy that was like the one thing that you had as an option when you were very, very young in a situation where like now technically you have more options. Right, right, right. And also, um, we are trying to, we're in the business of trying to form relationships with people so that we can do political organizing with them. Um, and we're struggling to do so. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I mean, that, that brings us very, very nicely to our next uh, question. Like we need to talk about attachment in the nexus. Um, how do you think that the nexus can impact people's ability to develop secure relationships? Yeah. And so, I mean, this is why I wanted to talk about this on 
um, the podcast because I actually think that there's so much um, to be said there. But basically, like, so, I mean, I'm sure everyone who's listening already knows what the Nexus is, but maybe it's worth saying it again just because maybe someone's listening to this for the first time and is like, what the fuck is the Nexus? Yeah, for sure. The Nexus is just our word that we made up to describe the sort of triple combination of identitarianism, cancel culture, and social media. Um, and so basically you can think of it as sort of like the woke internet or the sort of like weird liberalish, like lefty kind of phenomenon that has taken over a lot of what used to be the left. Um, and yeah, basically that's the yeah. Nexus. And so inside the Nexus, there is, you know, tons of shaming going on. There's tons of like rules that you need to follow, um, and the rules are always changing. There's exile. There's, like, public humiliation campaigns. There's, like, lots of scary stuff going on when you look at it from, like, an attachment and nervous system perspective, right? For sure. And so, like, if you're out here, you know, as a human being, trying to develop secure relationships with people that you can trust, trying to build communities so that you feel safe and so that you have your needs met, and in your community, like, you're watching people being shamed, being humiliated, being scolded, um all around you, it's, like, really, really frightening. And, you know, there are parallels, like, between the experience of, like, being inside the nexus and, like, being in an abusive relationship, except it's diffuse and it's not just happening from one person. It's happening from, like, a larger culture that you're in. For sure. Or being in a cult or being in, like, a totalitarian kind of system or there's, like, a lot of different parallels, yeah. Yeah. And, like, I mean, the reason I think of, like, abusive relationship is just because that's my experience. But it's, like, when I was in, like, a like, intimate partner violence type relationship, like, I was, like, walking on eggshells, um, constantly trying to predict, you know, what was going to get me into trouble, right? Right. Um, and so, like, always trying to, like, um, change my behavior ahead of time to, like, make myself as safe as possible. And so that is not, I mean, that's a, re- that's a recipe for disorganized attachment right there. For sure. But it's, like, that is not a safe and secure relationship, right? No, no. And what I realized is that, like, in in recovery, like, since I've gotten sober and, like, since I've been in therapy, like, I really did not realize at first that I was operating that way in kind of, like, all my relationships in the community that I was in. Um, even though these people, my friends, my acquaintances inside the Nexus were not, like, overtly abusing me in any kind of way like from an attachment perspective you were treating them like they could be like very dangerous well I was and it wasn't for no reason either like it wasn't just based on my past trauma even though you know my past trauma definitely made it worse but I had very good reason to believe that one misstep could result in exile could result in public shaming could result in like you know, any number of things, right? Because you've seen it happen. Because I've seen it happen around me all the time, right? And so what this did to me is that, like, and I think that this is not an uncommon experience. Like, I definitely think if you have disorganized attachment already or you have, like, prior trauma, like, this is going to be increased. But, like, I've heard this from lots of people. It's, like, if you're literally, like, scanning everything that you say, you know, and thinking really carefully about it to make sure that it's not going to offend anyone, to make sure that it's, like, the correct thing to say, to make sure that it's not going to get you into trouble. There's literally no possibility for intimacy there. Because, like, a real secure attachment is a relationship in which you don't have to be perfect, 
in which you're like held and seen in the full complexity of who you are. And your walls can be down. Yeah, your walls can be down. You you know that if you like have a bad day and act like an asshole or something, it's not like it's not supposed to be held against you like permanently and definitely not like publicly on the internet or something, right? Yeah, exactly. Like For you sure. like there's trust. And I guess like the nexus is like completely hostile to the possibility of trust. Um, and so, yeah, I think that people inside the Nexus, like, you know, are trying to build relationships in this way where it's about doing everything right and hoping that if they do everything right, they're not going to get in trouble and they're going to be safe and they're going to be able to have their close relationships. Um, and so it puts this huge imperative on doing everything right according to the Nexus. Right, for sure. And a big part of why the Nexus is so damaging to people's ability to develop secure relationships, as I mean you were hinting at, is the fact that these is that people have to watch other people getting canceled. Yeah. Um, which I mean, I'm gonna let you speak to this too, but like definitely is what you're witnessing when you see that is you're seeing people having many or most or sometimes like basically all of their relationships be severed. Yeah. Like artificially. Which is horrifying. Which is horrifying. And as you said, like the idea of losing, you know, a caregiver when you're an infant is literally life or death, you know? And, you know, for some people, um, that sense of it being like actually life or death can like continue into adulthood when you lose relationships. But for all of us, losing relationships like for like artificial or like sudden whatever reasons um is like really horrifying and like feels just like awful like one of the worst things right yeah and also it's like it's it's the threat of losing perhaps all or many of your close relationships um as well as being marked so that making relationships in the future will be harder for you because yeah. now you're seen as like bad, yeah. you know, um, as well as being, you know, publicly humiliated um, and all of the other things that go along with cancellation, which it's like, as I said earlier, like when you go through something really, really distressing, what do you want to do? You want to be with the person that you love and that you trust, mm-hmm. right? So cancellation is like a very particular cruelty because it's putting you through something really awful, but it's also taking away the people who you would normally turn to when you go through something really awful. For sure. For sure. And I mean, also even before that, like before you even get canceled or whatever, like I think something about the Nexus that's really kind of fucked up is that like the people who are supposed to be close to you, who you like would turn to, to deal with like really difficult scenarios or things that are going on in your life or whatever, are also people who on some level you're aware are people who are like, can be extremely dangerous and can, um, enact this like sequence of losing all of your relationships and being um, being exiled and being marked and and being um, being made um, infectious to others as well. Yeah, exactly. And so it's like that's why I'm saying it's like actually really hard, if not impossible, to actually have a secure attachment to someone in that context because you know, and it's it's really sad. Like I've. I've talked to obviously lots of people who have been canceled and like people who have been canceled, you know, if they do have a close friend or a partner who stays by their side during it, it's literally like the thing that like 
gives them the strength and like saves them and allows them to get through that horrifying experience. But I've also had people talk to me about their fear that even their partner would cancel them, you know, that even their partner is going to get fed up with this or they're going to be exhausted or it's just going to be easier for them to like turn on them too. Right. And so it's such a horrifying position for someone to be in because it's like even their closest, most trusted person, like they're worrying that they're also going to be treated in this like totally like disposable way. And so like, I think it's important that people understand that like, it's not just canceled people, you know? And, like, someone was pointing out to me uh, or reminding me that, like, in my book, um, You Can't Own the Fucking Stars, like, that I wrote when I was, like, a full-blown Nexon, like, I have a piece in there that's, like, called Call-Out Culture, like, the binaries of good and bad. And I'm, like, extremely, extremely, extremely ne- nexus at this time in my life, right? Right, 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 Like, I was obsessed with doing everything right, and, like, I was trying really hard. Yeah, you were super deep in it. Yeah, I was super deep in it. But, like, I was so fucking scared of being canceled, even though, like, you know, I wasn't that well-known at that point in my life. I was constantly trying to do everything right, like, but I was still so scared of being canceled. And I wrote this piece and tried to do it, like, very, very, very carefully following all of the Nexus rules to be, like, maybe this is, like, frightening. <laughs> like, maybe, right. maybe, like, you know, maybe, maybe... You think about this. Maybe there's, like, a better way or something, you know? Yeah. But, like, it's funny because it's, like, people... I've seen people, you know, say that, like, the only reason um, I care about cancel culture is because I was canceled. And I'm, like, that's a bizarre thing to say in general because it's, like... I mean, even if that were true, it's like, of course I would care about that. Something that's personally affecting you. Yeah, like that. It's like, like saying you only care about sexism because you're a woman. Yeah, exactly. Or like, <laughs> whatever. Yeah. Um, like you only care about bicycle safety because you were hit by a car. It's right, like, right, right, I mean, right, right, right. I mean, yeah, like it probably influenced that. But um, also, it's just not true because long before I was canceled, years and years and years before I was canceled, I was impacted by this and like I didn't necessarily I wasn't able to articulate my it to myself or to anyone as clearly as I am now but I was like obviously being impacted by it and it was affecting my life a lot and so yeah and then when I did get canceled and I like lost the majority of my close relationships it really was such a huge wake-up call to realize that like I had been investing years of my life in relationships that were totally insecure and that were like you know, completely went up in flames as soon as I was targeted. For sure. For sure. And people will go to, like, very extreme lengths to, like, avoid this kind of thing. Um, I don't know. What are some strategies that people use as a way to um, cope with the sort of, like, terror of being canceled and the, the fear of this attachment trauma? Yeah. So, like, one of the things that really became clear to me after getting canceled and like kind of looking back at my life inside the nexus through like a trauma lens is that one of the one of the common responses okay so i'm going to talk about nervous system stuff in a different episode but just so that you understand what i'm saying basically there's there's three basic nervous system responses to threat there's fight flight and freeze so i'm sure people have heard that to some extent right yeah. um those are literally like biological responses that are inside the nervous system that happen to mammals when we are faced with like a dangerous situation right right? 
But there's another response. Um, I learned about it from Pete Walker. Uh, I'm sure other people have probably written about it as well, but Pete Walker calls it the fawn response. Right. It's also called people-pleasing. I also think that a lot of what people refer to as codependency falls into this category as well. And basically, the fawn response is a little bit different than the other responses because it's not like a biological nervous system thing. It's actually an adaptation to being in a relationship context that regularly has threat in it. So for survivors of child abuse or dysfunctional families where things were really not safe, they're likely to develop a fawn response. Or that's like one trajectory that could happen. Right. And so basically what a fawn response is, it's kind of like what I was mentioning earlier about being in an abusive relationship. Instead of, um, you know, like defending yourself if people treat you badly, you begin to try to like preemptively predict what is going to result in you being treated badly and then change your behavior ahead of time. Um, and this is not like the normal thing of just being like, yeah, I shouldn't be an asshole to people. Right, right, right. This is like, I am going to, for example, not be honest about what I really think about things or like not, not do like normal things that you would normally do. Um, mm-hmm. So, like, in an abusive relationship, it might be, like, I don't leave my cup in the sink because he always gets really mad at me when I do that or whatever. Um, And so, in the context of the nexus, it's, like, people hypervigilantly, you know, reading a tweet that they're going to write, like, seven times or saving it in their drafts because they're, like, afraid to post it because they're unsure if it, like, is going to get them into trouble. Right. Or, like, you know obsessively ruminating about something that they said or something that they did and like how that could be interpreted mm-hmm. ungenerously. Right. Um, all of this kind of stuff is like, if you're trying to alter your behavior in order to avoid punishment, it's a fawn response. And so part of the fawn response as well is that when you are treated badly, you take responsibility for it. Right. Right. So right. like, instead of saying, you know, if someone is being abusive towards you, instead of being like, that's not right that you're treating me that way, or like trying to run away or trying to fight them or something, you respond by being like, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. Um, Which is like a very disturbing response to somebody like hurting you or being abusive towards you. But basically that's exactly what the Nexus asks of people, Right. right? That if you are being targeted by one of these cancellation campaigns, if you're being called out on the internet, if you in any kind of way are being like, checked or whatever that you the only appropriate response is to basically totally collapse and be like i'm sorry thank you it's all it's actually true that sorry isn't even enough you also have to thank them yeah for like the the gift um that they're giving you yeah and you have to totally swallow any disagreement that you might have Mm -hmm. or any feelings that you might have about the way that you're being treated Mm -hmm. um it's disturbing man it is, and it's exactly the same kind of behavior that plays out in abusive relationships. Totally. And so, you know, like, what I realized is that having been, you know, in having grown up in an abusive home and then having been in an abusive relationship as an adult, like, the fun response was super normal to me already, even before the nexus, right? So, like, it was really... Um, normal and easy for me to be like yes of course you're right yes of course I'm sorry right um and I think you like had a bit of a different experience with this 
where like that fawn response was like hard for you, which is part of the reason why you got into trouble in the Nexus so often. Because when people said absurd things to you, you were more likely to just be like, I don't agree with that. Yeah, I would stand up for myself more frequently. You would stand up for yourself and then that would get you into trouble. Whereas yeah. like for Although me... Although even, even me, like I fawned like to a certain degree, you know, yeah. just like not like all the way because I found it like really difficult. Yeah, <laughs> like definitely you were not as like totally 100 as you are now, but like, yeah you definitely got into trouble even for standing up for yourself a little bit yeah. or saying that you didn't agree a hundred percent with like what people were saying or whatever. Right. Yeah. Or refusing to do what people were telling me to do. Exactly. And so for me, it was like, I pretty much folded most of the time. And like, I basically tried to never get into a position in the first place where I would have to, you know, make that choice. But then if I was put in that position, you know, I would always be like, thank you. I'm sorry. Um, and like, <laughs> Yeah, and so basically, that's that's what the fun response is, and and it's like people pleasing. It's trying to like manage threat by being good. Right, that makes sense, and I mean it's something that we see like fucking constantly in the nexus, yeah. like nakedly, like so openly, mm-hmm. right? And once you see it, honestly, it's like really hard to unsee, and you're just like, this is like some weird like attachment shit, like playing out on like a mass scale. I mean, speaking of which, do you think it's fair to call? cancellation itself just like a form of attachment trauma that's being that's being sort of like massively um uh, like amplified by the internet yeah absolutely so like basically i mean i firmly believe that being canceled is traumatic um if you don't have um it's like what we talked about with dr christine marie that like people in her study who um had gone through like public humiliation and misrepresentation campaigns like showed symptoms of PTSD. So I genuinely think that cancellation is traumatic in and of itself, but specifically it's, it's traumatic. There's a component of it that is traumatic in the attachment sense, which is that even if you managed, you know, I think like if you're in the nexus, the chances of you having secure attachment is probably less high than the general population. I think that that's fair to say, um, yeah. Because it's easier for people with secure attachment to, like, not have a fun response, not people, please, to, like, walk away from dysfunctional dynamics and stuff because they believe that they can get their attachment needs met elsewhere. They have a model for what a secure relationship looks like. Right, and certain kinds of, like, scenes and, like, social worlds and stuff can, like, sort of, they, they select their participants in a certain way, like, based on their own... Um, structures and like norms and stuff like that like certain kinds of people are just always going to find it extremely difficult to hang out like well in the nexus for example but also to hang out in like like a in like a baptist church or like whatever it might be you know yeah and so it's like i do think that it's likely that a lot of the people inside the nexus already don't have secure attachment but safe just for example because i'm sure that there's some that do exist right that you have totally secure attachment up until this point like this experience is very likely going to have an impact on your attachment style going forward. I would be very surprised if it didn't. Because if you have this worldview where you're like, people are mostly trustworthy, you know, relationships can mostly be dependent on, you know, when bad things happen, it's the anomaly, it's not the rule, you know? Um, When bad things happen, I can depend on my close people to be there for me to help me move through that experience. Like, these are the kinds of beliefs that people with secure attachment have. And so if something horrible happens to you and the majority of the people that you trusted abandon you, 
that's going to rock your world and is very likely that you're going to come out of that with a different set of beliefs where you're going to be like, maybe people are not that trustworthy, you know? Um, maybe I can't depend on my closest people when I'm in a time of need, etc. Yeah, that's true. Or you just completely abandon, like, any attachment to the nexus that you had and you're just like, wow, that was a crazy time. <laughs> I mean, that would be the ideal situation. Like, um, Yeah, like, people who are, like, very healthy, I think, like, often do have a reaction yeah. like that. And also are more likely to be people with, like, very healthy, secure relationships. And um, they're, maybe their friends, like, don't abandon them over some something that happened on the internet. And, like, maybe that, you know, they're, they're way more, like, resilient in terms of their... Yeah, like, maybe they never even got that deep into it in the first place because they're, like, way less likely to sort of, like, yeah, like, end up there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so we've been having some very interesting conversations recently about fundamentalism and mm-hmm. its relationships to the nexus. And we've even mentioned it a little bit on the pod. Um, and there's a book in particular that you've been reading um, called, I believe, Terror, Love, and Brainwashing. Yeah. Um, and I think that you should explain um, what that book is about because <laughs> we've been talking about it a lot and um, it is it seems very related. Yeah, so it's a really interesting book. I think I've mentioned it on the podcast already, but basically it's a book about cults and fundamentalist ideologies. Um, And The Nexus is not a cult. It's different from a cult because it doesn't have a leader, right? But basically when I was reading it, and actually the person who recommended the book to me actually recommended the book to me and said, I've been reading this book and I can't stop thinking about The Nexus. So I was like, interesting. So I, I picked it up. And basically it's a really cool book. Um, the author, Alexandra Stein, is a cult survivor. Like, she exited a cult, and then she's done a lot of research on this stuff. But she uses an entirely attachment theory-based lens um, to understand the ways that cults and fundamentalist ideologies function. No, that's really interesting. It's really interesting. And so, basically, her entire thesis is that cults and fundamentalist ideologies produce disorganized attachment in the people who are in the cult or, or who are subjected to the ideology. Okay. So it's something that could be like socially engineered into people. Yeah. And I mean, it's not like that they are like set, setting out to be like, we're going to create disorganized attachment. You know, it's not necessarily so. But they're setting out to control people's behaviors. And that's like one way that it, that they can do it basically. Yeah. Yeah. I would say that that's true. Right. Um, and so basically, as I said before, attachment styles can change. So it's like, even if you, like, if you have, say you have disorganized attachment or you had anxious preoccupied attachment from childhood, but you do a lot of work on yourself, you go to therapy, you work in your relationships, and then eventually you can get to a place that's called earned secure attachment. So you basically have more or less secure attachment, maybe not the same kind as somebody who had it since they were a kid, but like some version of it, right? But similarly, your attachment style can change in a more negative way where somebody who has secure attachment or somebody who has like anxious preoccupied attachment could move towards disorganized attachment if they had traumatic specific kinds of traumatic experiences later in life. Sure, okay. Um, and so the same kind of behavior that produces disorganized attachment in infants can also produce disorganized attachment in adults. Okay. And what produces disorganized attachment is this combination of, on the one hand, love, safety, security, and on the other hand, fear, threat. Terror um, combined into one place. Okay. And so basically, I mean, 
she talks about in the book how there's parallels. You can look like from as small of a group as like one person, like basically two people in an intimate partner violence relationship. Mm. It's very similar tactics that are used from that into larger things like cults um, and fundamentalist groups. And so what it there's like several stages that are involved, but basically first you like provide community. You provide a sense of belonging. You are a safe place for the person to go. Right. Um, it's especially effective if the person is coming out of a place that was not safe. So if that person is already traumatized or has had bad experiences, they're going to be more vulnerable to this. Right. But it can also work for people who are healthy and who have secure attachment. But basically you provide a safe place, um, a welcoming place, you offer friendship, you offer community. Um, all that good stuff, right? Right. Then, usually, through various means, there's, like, an isolating process where, mm-hmm. like, you you start to, like, have more and more of your connections within the group and less and less of your connections outside of the group. And then, slowly, there's sort of, like, an introduction of, like, suspicion towards your outside connections, right? Why right. are they not inside the group? Right. What's, you know, and, like, this can take a lot of different shapes depending on what the specific ideology is, but... The ideology will offer like a sort of meaning making system, right? So you'll start to view the world this way and then you'll start to question why there's people in your life who don't view the world this way. Mm. And then you will be encouraged, usually subtly at first, to start withdrawing from those outside relationships. And so that what ends up happening is that usually by the time the scary part starts, you're kind of isolated and you kind of have sunk a lot into this. You're You're kind of... You've set up camp here now. You're yeah. you're invested. Yeah. And so it's a lot harder. You know, if somebody was just like an asshole to you right up front, most people, especially people with secure attachment, are going to be like, okay, bye. Right. Um, but if you've already invested a lot emotionally, most of your relationships are connected to this, you know, that then when something bad happens, it's really confusing. Um, and you have this, this attachment um, situation where there's part of you where that all of your attachment is pulling you towards because this is the person or the group that you trust. You know, this is where you feel safe. This is where you feel connected. But then now there's something that is making you feel frightened and is pushing you away. And so that tension is like extremely difficult to resolve. And that's what produces disorganized attachment. Mm -hmm. And so in this book, like her whole thesis is that cults produce disorganized attachment and that's how they, that's how they get people. Right. And that's why, that's why people do um, the crazy things that people do often when they're in cults. And so part of what is going on with this organized attachment is that it's dissociative. And what that means is that when you have two conflicting realities that do not make sense together in one place, like you can't cope with it, right? So you basically have to sort of disconnect from part of what is going on, right? Right. Because you can't hold it all at the same time because it's contradictory. Um, The person I love can't also be the person that I'm terrified of, right? And so you start to disconnect and, like, repress or dissociate from the parts of you that are aware that this is fucked up. Like, what's happening is scary. Um, And this can happen in a number of different ways. One of the ways that it happens is that people will – and this – goes back to the fawning and the people-pleasing, people will believe that it's their fault. If they've totally internalized the worldview, then if they get punished or they're treated badly, they, they make sense out of it through the worldview. So they're like, I'm being punished or I'm being treated badly 
because I broke some kind of rule. I mm-hmm. did something bad. Right. And so that's why this is happening to me. It's not because this is actually like a fundamentally frightening place. It's actually just that I'm the problem. I did something wrong. Right. 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 And so reading this, I was like, yes, like I obviously can see how this would play out in specific ways in cults. But I actually was like, holy shit, I think the Nexus is an example of a type of fundamentalism. Um, And so, I mean, we can unpack a little bit about why I would say that. But, like, if you look at the different components that I just mentioned, right, you know, a lot of people who show up to the Nexus do so because they already have experienced some form of marginalization. I think about this especially with queer people, but obviously it happens to other marginalized groups where they've already experienced rejection. They've already experienced maybe violence or like, you know, various forms of like unsafety in the world. Right. And then the nexus is offered as this place of like safety of social justice of like welcome. And like, you're not going to be turned away for who you are. You're not going to be like treated badly for who you are. And so like, that's, that's very, very Welcoming, obviously. Super appealing, yeah. Yeah. And so there's that piece. And then you start to learn that, like, okay, there's, like, this whole ideology about how to to do that, about how to be welcoming, about how to, like, stand up for people who get hurt and who are treated badly. But then you learn that there's, like, all of these complex rules about how you're supposed to do that. And so you start to follow those rules and to do those things. But then you might notice that you're being told that people who don't follow those rules perfectly are oppressive are like part of the problem are bad Mm -hmm. and so say for example you do have a relationship with your family of origin or like you do have a friend who you like went to high school with who like doesn't know about this stuff Mm -hmm. and they keep saying problematic things or whatever like in the nexus there's like literally like infographics about this where they will tell you that it's your job to call them in to educate them to basically indoctrinate them into this ideology yeah And if they resist in any way or they're not interested or they disagree with you, then now you need to see that person as bad, as part of the problem, you know, and that you actually maintaining a relationship with that person is like kind of like an admission of your own guilt and not being fully aligned with the ideology. And you actually see a very similar thing in like various like religious fundamentalist belief systems. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And so it's very similar in that regard. And so then what ends up happening is that people start to get into a position where more and more and more of the people that they know are inside the nexus. Um, And in some cases, literally everyone they know is inside the nexus. It's also true that a lot of people, and this, she talks about this in the book with cults, that apparently in various cults, they will also give like, um, like a few of the examples she talked about, they give like employment opportunities. So mm. people's jobs are connected to yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, And so like a very similar thing happens in the Nexus where totally. it's like a lot of people inside the Nexus, like once they're deep in, it's like they work at some like nonprofit that is like 100% under Nexus ideology or they're like, you know, an entrepreneur, you know, entrepreneur who says, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It's, it's a French word that English people say wrong. I don't know. I am an entrepreneur. Um, <laughs> anyway, so yeah, like they, and so like their, their business is like tied to like this audience and to this community. Right. Um, and so there's, there's. I think very often situations in which people are so deep in it where it's like all areas of their life are the nexus mm-hmm. and they don't actually have any relationships anymore with people outside of it. 
And I think that... And, or, like, barely even any activities that are, like, outside of exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that that is why people who are not in the nexus really can't understand why cancel culture is such a big deal or why we keep making such a big deal out of it. Mm. Because they're like, well, just go talk to your other friends. Like, they're like, why... Because they can't imagine being in a situation like that where it, where everyone they know would treat them like that, right? Because yeah. it's a very weird situation to be in. It's absolutely not a normal state of affairs, right? For sure. Although, yeah, I mean, cancel culture can also, like, follow a person, like, way the fuck outside of the nexus. Um, well, especially because the nexus is becoming more and more hegemonic. And, and more so, and more mainstream. It's got its tentacles and everything. Yeah, exactly. So then, yes, but, like... You know, if you, and I mean, like, I've tried this, right? Like, I just have, like, gone on Tinder and, like, matched with someone who's not in the Nexus and then talked to them about it. And they literally are like, what are you saying? Like, what do you mean? You know, it doesn't make any sense. Like, because they aren't in an ideology in which they have been told that they're not allowed to be friends with someone who disagrees with them on something or who doesn't follow particular, like, rhetorical, like, linguistic rules or, like, all of these things, right? Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, so I feel like, do you think I made the case that it's a form of fundamentalism? Yeah, or at least that it's a form of something that, like, shares a lot of characteristics with fundamentalism, you yeah. know? And I think also shares a lot of characteristics with, um, like, totalitarian ideologies as well, you know? Yeah. I mean, it, it reminds me so much of, you know, people's stories from, like... Uh, like North Korea or like even like the USSR in certain periods of, of the Soviet Union um, where, you know, you're basically, you're in this kind of like this, the state where, you know, everyone kind of knows what's going on, but everyone pretends they don't know what's going on or they, you know, they pretend something else and everybody knows that they're pretending, you know, and it's just this like big sort of like psychic like cloud hanging over people's heads that they just you know eventually just normalize and get on with their lives because that's what people do right um and i think that like i don't know particularly in the case of the soviet union i feel like it's probably been um sort of like that aspect of things has been like hyped up by like western propaganda a lot but it definitely like was a thing like under stalin in certain periods right um and i don't know i definitely think also that this is where my like my like deep anarchist sensibilities get like super like fucking squicked out and i'm just like i i, I want nothing to do with anything like that you know yeah absolutely. and I'm, I'm really like we can't we can't be like encouraging um you know people to like snitch on their parents and yeah. stuff like that like any anything that's that's even like remotely like that i'm just like no thanks you know yeah. um yeah yeah and i think like another piece of it is that it's like like part of the reason why i'm like the nexus is actually not politics it's actually it's, it's a form of fundamentalism and it's more like a religion than it is a politics is because you aren't allowed to ask any questions. You aren't allowed to disagree. Like if it were a politics, there would be like space for like disagreement and debate. Debate. Yeah. Yeah. Healthy totally. debate. Totally. Like, you, Which like even like really like tanky communists are like, yeah, they, they'll love to debate. They you. love to debate. you, <laughs> Even if they feel extremely strongly about what they think, like they want to prove that they're right using like argument, not not using threat, right? And so it's this thing where it's like the the threat of punishment and the threat of exile is hanging over your head if you step out of line. That is what I think qualifies it as fundamentalism. And yeah, and so like this book is talking about that and then it's also talking about how this produces specifically disorganized attachment and then how the disorganized attachment makes people act in ways that they wouldn't normally act. 
So basically, if you're like in a cult or something, people do all sorts of weird things, right? Uh-huh. Um, or they act in ways that might be totally out of alignment with their integrity or like what they normally would have said their principles and beliefs are prior to having been in the cult. Yeah. And I think like a similar thing can be said inside the Nexus where it's like, you know, people will, for example, take part in like shaming and degrading someone, even if they profess to have the belief that shaming and degrading people is wrong. Or if they profess to be in uh, a safe space. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and also, they will, like, literally abandon and, like, turn their backs on people who they, it seems they really did love. Yeah, who they call their chosen family. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, the ability to, like, repress those urges um, and to, you know take part in group collective cruelty towards someone that you genuinely have loving feelings towards is like, that's like a pretty crazy thing to do. Yeah, absolutely. And so like the reason that disorganized attachment creates the conditions under which people act this way is because of the dissociative element, right? Because if they were to say, Oh my, if they were to let into their consciousness that what is happening is wrong or that the way that they're acting is wrong, or that they don't want to hurt and abandon their friend, it would open a floodgate because it would open up the awareness of everything else that's been going on and the fact that they feel afraid of their friends and the fact that they don't feel safe in their safe space. Yeah, and it, like, it calls everything into question. And that is so overwhelming because sure. now you're already in a position where questioning this is punishable by humiliation and exile, first of all, yep. but also that you have so much invested now that you would lose everything, right? And so people cannot cope with that level of threat. And so they instead comply and just do what they're told. And so on a nervous system level or on like a biological level, like there's a very real function that happens in people's bodies, which is that when people are in a distressed nervous system response, a fight-flight nervous system response, even if they're enacting that fight-flight response as fawn, which they often are doing in the nexus, in their body, they're feeling fear. Like, they're feeling deep and intense fear. And when you're literally in that level of fear, the frontal lobe of your brain, it literally is not functioning properly. Mm -hmm. And that's why someone who's, like, running for their life can't, like, you know, do a math problem. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. You can't think properly. That part of your brain is like it's literally not, not even not like working on, yeah. because you are actually focused on like more important things. And so similarly, like, you know, in this condition in the nexus, like if you are constantly thinking about, you know, trying to maintain your relationships, trying not to be punished, trying to to stay in line so that you are safe, you're not, you're not going to have any room for critical thinking, which means you're not going to have any space in your brain to question what is happening to you, Yeah. to wonder if what is happening in your life is right or wrong or if it's scary or okay. Like, yeah. you can't even ask those questions. And importantly, you certainly cannot ask larger questions like what would be the best way to, you know, bring about socialism or like, you know, if we want to totally do away with racism what is the what is the best way to do that like you can't think clearly about those questions you only have to memorize the correct responses that the nexus has given you yeah you can't think critically for sure and so it's a bad scene yeah yeah it's a bad fucking scene i don't know this whole thing is making me think a lot about this like little mini essay that i wrote a while ago 
Um, but like now I'm just thinking about it all through the lens of um, attachment theory, you know? And like the, the main thesis of this little, little mini essay was that the nexus is like extremely hostile to loyalty, you know? Exactly. And now that I'm thinking about it, I'm like, Loyalty is just, like, secure attachment, like, writ large, you yeah, know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it is the idea. It's if you, if you are loyal and you have loyal friends yeah. and a loyal community, right, yeah. you proceed through life with the understanding that, like, those relationships are, you know, maybe not, like, totally impregnable, but, like, they're, they're safe. Like, you, they're, they're not going anywhere, Yeah, you know? it would take, like, a huge amount. You would have to do something totally fucking crazy, to to end those types of relationships. Yeah. And it doesn't mean those relationships can't change or whatever, but the idea is is that the unconditional positive regard that people have towards you is literally unconditional. It's not it's not something that you earn through good behavior. Totally, totally, totally. It's not going anywhere. You don't need to prove yourself. You don't need to cut off other people in order to yeah. have your loyalty, whatever. It's just there, right? As opposed to like allyship under the nexus, which like whatever, it's not even really, like, allyship, but, like, people's relationship to the Nexus often is this, like, really creepy one-sided loyalty where they're very obedient to the Nexus um, and at the same time are aware on some level that the Nexus will squash them like a bug if if the, if the time ever comes, you know what I mean? Um, so that's, like, a very different kind of relationship to uh, towards, like, attachment, like, right there, you know? Um, and you're supposed to be loyal to like this simulated community, um, rather than to your actually existing community. Yeah. And you're not, you're not supposed to expect this simulated community to be loyal to you. Yeah. You're, you're aware that at any time, like that can just be taken away. You yeah. Know? But this obsession with being good is like this idea that like it won't happen to you as long as you do everything right. Yeah. It's like fealty. Instead yeah. of loyalty in, in, in a certain way, you yeah. know? Loyalty is seen as, like, suspicious and, like, inherently, like, dangerous and bad within the Nexus, yeah. you know? Because, like, and I've heard people say this, actually. Yeah. They've called loyalty, um, this is back in the day, I had this discussion with somebody and they were calling loyalty, um, like, an example of, like, toxic masculinity and, like, a way that, like, men, um, you know, like, protect each other when they've, like, done something bad, basically. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I'm like, wow, your life sounds scary. Yeah. You know, if you can't conceptualize loyalty as something that keeps you safe, like in in the the many, many circumstances in which you like do something less than ideal, <laughs> you know what I mean? Absolutely. Then like that's fucking terrifying, you know? And then I don't know, I was just thinking about all these like these methods that are used within the Nexus to like soften people up against their fucking friends and, and make them feel like their friends are disposable and make them understand that they themselves are disposable, you know? There's like the whole like way that in the nexus it's like totally normal to like massively overstate harm or even like make like um to even like make up stories about people that are like not true and that people like know on some level aren't true and or like that they know that the overstatement of harm is like inaccurate but accept it anyway and then it creates the spectacle with like many people accepting something that isn't true and and that all being sort of like somewhat in the open and that's just like this like terrifying like threat that people are able to do they're like look at this act of rhetorical unfairness that I'm just able to do and not only does no one call me out for it but um, people also um, will support me doing it you know so it's like look at this power that I wield over you you know yeah Um, yeah absolutely and the the reason that people are you know not pointing out that it doesn't make sense or not questioning it is again because of this dissociative relationship that they have with it because to to question it or to open their mind to the idea that like you know, what, what they're hearing doesn't totally make sense would, would open the floodgates again to like 
everything else that they're pressing down about, like, the way that they're being treated and the way that they're seeing other people being treated. Mm -hmm. It's a demonstration of power and it's like a threat. And it reminds me of in cults and stuff like that, like sort of forcing people to repeat like counterfactual statements or something to like, to like prove their loyalty or whatever, you know, Um, or the way that like, um, people are marked as like infectious within the nexus. And it's just like, if you associate with this person, you too will be canceled. Um, I mean, it's a form of collective punishment, right? Um, which is about tapping into people's terror of being alone because like, you know, that if people around you are going to be collectively punished, then there might not be very many people around you. You know what I mean? And you could watch other people having like, yeah, like we mentioned, having all of their relationships kind of severed and being cast adrift, you know? And that is like super scary. Um, or the, like, permanent presumption of guilt that is, like, a staple within the Nexus. You know, the idea that um, everybody is always, like, really, like, a secret... Or everyone is um, possibly a secret threat, like, lurking within the Nexus. You know, everyone's, yeah. like, possibly an undercover spy for the bad guys. Everyone's possibly going to reveal at any moment that they've been secretly bad all along. And you might be one of those people. Yeah, and interestingly, one of the words that people use to express that sentiment is complicit. Mm. So people will be like, you're complicit. And and what this means is that, like, you hold some kind of, like, psycho-spiritual responsibility and you've been conspiring with the enemy yeah and but like even if you weren't doing anything like just by existing in whatever identity category it's usually based in an identitarian claim that you are complicit with like these larger systems right Mm -hmm. um and so you have this like permanent state of guilt and badness that can be called up at any time that you must like apologize for and repent yeah yeah totally so anyways i don't know all all three of those mechanisms and there's lots more Um, are basically, they're about removing the feeling of safety. They're about removing the possibility of secure attachment. Um, And it's, you know, like with many things in the Nexus, I don't think that it's, like, being done deliberately by some, like, weird, like, um, you know, secret group of people or something like that. It's diffuse. It's, like, crowdsourced cult shit, you know? It's, like, wiki cult. Yeah, I mean, like, this is is the difference. And, And it's one of the things that I'd actually, like, love to hear more about from Alexander Stein is just, like, how this stuff functions when it's not a cult and there isn't a leader because so much of the stuff that she talks about is in the context of cults where there is literally a leader that is orchestrating all of this. Right. Yeah. Um, but I actually think that fundamentalism, you know, cause like in religions and stuff, like there are sort of bodies of power and stuff, but often a lot of this stuff is being carried out by like the people themselves. Totally. totally right. For sure. Um, and so, this is a similar example to that where like there are, you know, specific, you know, major people in the Nexus, for example, like sort of like weird Nexus celebrities and like there's like organizations and institutions and like academia and stuff like that, that have like significant amount of power to like shift what's going on in the Nexus. Um, but no one is in charge. And like, that's, what's really interesting that this is playing out in a much more like, yeah, diffuse and like lateral way where people are doing this to each other. Yeah. Which honestly makes me think that like, yeah, like the capacity for this kind of thing is like built into humans in a certain way. It's a result of our like brain architecture, you know, and attachment theory is a really good way of understanding this, but like that is both like kind of like a grim thing to think, but also means that if we understand it, there's something that we can do about it. And there's like, um, social, uh, solutions to that kind of problem cropping up. You know what I mean? Not that I know exactly what they are, but it's good to at least be able to, like, put a name to, like, some of these things that are happening inside people's heads, you know? Um, Yeah, because it's not all – it's not all 
logical. Like a lot of this stuff is not like being reasoned out by people, you know, it's like really happening on this like gut level, this like instinctual fight, flight, freeze, fun, um, like terror, love and brainwashing kind of level, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Yeah. So, I mean, we're, we just kind of got into it a little bit, but like, I do really want to talk more about why socialists should care about attachment theory and like, really like, I don't know, you, you have a lot to say about this, I think. And yeah, I don't know. I was wondering. Yeah. So, I mean, it's interesting, right? And part of the reason why I want to bring this kind of knowledge that I have onto this podcast is like for a few reasons, but one of the reasons is that like hilariously, I'm just like, it's right in the name. It's called socialism. (laughs) Like it's, it's social, you know, like it's right in the name. And like, I mean, that's, I mean, I think that's for a reason. Like it has to do with human relationships and like meeting people's needs. Socialism is about meeting people's needs. And so, I mean, I think that if, if as socialists, on one level, it's like as socialists, if we want to meet people's needs genuinely, we have to understand what people's needs are. And I think part of like, you know, the kind of socialism that we're modeling on this podcast is one that cares about people's needs, obviously in an economic way, because under capitalism, it's very hard to meet your needs without the means to do so, which is economic, you know? Um, And that's often lost. um, So it's very important to remember that. But also, like, people have other needs that are also important, you know? And some of those needs are about human relationship. And this is part of the reason why I'm an abolitionist, for example, because to lock someone in a box is fundamentally, I mean, it robs many things of them, but one of the things that it robs from them is their ability to have, like, close and meaningful relationships, right? Yes. Um, people need relationships. It's a fundamental human need, and um, therefore I think socialists should care about it. I mm-hmm. think that socialists should care about everything that people need and about how we should best try to meet those needs for people. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's part of it. The other part is that how many, if you think about it, how many political projects, you know, collective houses like whatever, whatever you want to name, like things that people have started with the hope of doing good in the world have totally fucking imploded due to interpersonal shit. Yeah. Like so, so many nexus and outside of the nexus too, you know, because anything that we do is always made up of relationships. Anything that we do is always made up of multiple people working together, and so therefore it's made up of relationships. And if we don't understand how relationships work and how relating works, then we don't we don't notice when shit goes all fucking crazy, and we don't know how to fix that, right? Um, and so I really think that like socialists should know they should have nervous system literacy. They should understand and be able to tell when someone is moving out of their window of tolerance and is becoming distressed, right? And if someone is becoming distressed. The goal then is to return to a feeling of safety and trust before having the difficult fucking political discussion or like debate about like whatever needs to be done, right? Yeah. Um, and so from like a pragmatic level, I'm like, if we don't know how to have relationships, we're not gonna fucking get shit done. Um, and so we actually need to learn how to have relationships and we need to understand, like specifically with attachment theory, that not everyone is entering into these relationships from the same position Mm -hmm. and so something that if you have secure attachment you might literally be bewildered 
at the ways that people with insecure attachment act. You know, you might not be able to understand why someone is getting so triggered or so worked up about something. But if you have that lens and you understand that, okay, like this on the surface seems to be like a discussion, you know, about like, I don't know, I'm trying to think of an example. Gender. No, but not even that. Like, I'm, I guess, sure, we can do that. But I was also just thinking more about like in an organizing context. Oh, okay, okay. Like okay. trying to decide, like, um, should we put our pronouns on our pins? Yeah. Or even something less loaded, but sure. Um, you know, like, is this pay what you can or like does it have a set door fee or something? You okay, know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Um I got you. and someone is fucking losing their mind. Right. Right? Right, 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 right. Like a piece of what is happening, probably, like I would guess, is that part of the emotional heat about why that person is losing their mind instead of just strongly defending their position mm-hmm. is because there is a part of them that is saying, do I matter? Okay. Like, do people here care about me? Do right. people care about my pain? Do people care about my distress? Am I important? Am I a member of this group? You know? And so, you know, and, and they might be like this. They're not understanding why, you know, like to me, pay what you can is so fucking important. Right. Because for whatever reasons that I believe, whatever connections that has to my own story, but also people's disagreement with me can feel like a dismissal of me as a person. Right. Right. And so if we want to disagree with people effectively in like a collective context, we have to do so in a way that we know how to not be rejecting the person mm-hmm. and actually emotionally connecting with like the needs that are underneath the position that they have mm-hmm. and being like, those needs matter. And I might disagree with sort of like the, the strategy you're setting forth, but I care about you. And I care about what's important to you, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And so that is so much more fucking regulating. And so if a person really believed that, if they believe that they are fundamentally like essential and people need them and want them to be there and care about them and don't want them to be hurt and don't want, you know, them to be in a position that is going to be bad for them, then they're much more likely to be more flexible or to, you know, have that frontal lobe online to actually be able to hear what the other people are saying. And like, That's such a good point. Like, whatever whatever they decide on, you know, maybe they won't be able to agree. Like, that could still happen. But the emotional loadedness is often coming from these other places that are often attachment-based. And they're coming from the basic questions that human beings are always asking, which is basically like, do I matter? Will I be alone? Can I depend on these people? Like, am I safe? Yeah, for sure. For sure. And also, I mean, sometimes people, I mean, I'm just thinking about somebody who might be not freaking out and losing their mind in a context like that, but somebody who might just be kind of like being like cold and like being like a dick about it. Well, now you're going to the dismissive avoidance side. Well, yes, because I (laughs) am a little bit more of the avoidant myself, you know? But yeah, like someone just being like, this is never going to fucking work anyway. Like, why don't people just like, why can't they just like shut up and like do what's like, obvious? Like, I don't have time for this. I don't have time for this. I'm fucking leaving this group. Like, whatever. You know what I mean? Absolutely. It's like also. Yeah, that is also a sign of the same questions, though, that are going on, right? Mm-hmm. Because the if this is a dismissive avoidant, like their core thing is that 
like the the anxious preoccupied one that was the example I was just giving is being like maybe if I just don't stop my knees will be mad. Right. Maybe if I just keep turning up the volume my knees will be mad. Right. But the and um, also maybe if I keep if I you know maybe if I start calling people even more intense like yeah, names and if I start calling mistakes. them it's, it's it's white supremacist that it's not yeah. do what you can you know whatever, exactly yeah. because I want people to understand that this matters you know and yeah. so I need to make it as big as possible. That's definitely an anxious preoccupied move. Move. Yeah. But then the avoidant it's like the avoidant is like you know. I'm not even going to do that because nothing that I say matters anyway. Like, or they're like already struggling to feel that um, the group will ever take care of their needs yeah, anyway. Exactly. You know? They don't. They don't trust that on a basic level. And especially if there is an anxious, preoccupied person, they're freaking out and taking up lots of space. That is going to be again reinforcing their belief that like they don't get to take up space. Like they don't actually. Their stuff is never going to be as big or matter as much as this, right? Yeah. So yeah, it can it can manifest in totally different ways. And that's why it's really important to understand these things because then you can have more of a literacy to understand like, oh, actually, you know, and like regardless of, of whether or not you fully understand what's going on, it's a good thing to just check in and be like, could it be that this person feels threatened on a personal level? Yeah. You know, like, could it be that this person is feeling threatened on a relational level mm-hmm. instead of always just being like, we're just talking about facts, facts and like disagreeing about like whatever discourse bullshit, you know, but actually like going back to the relationships themselves, which is something that is sorely lacking all around, Mm -hmm. like in all contexts, but is also definitely lacking in the nexus where relationships are totally expendable. Um, and being like, wow, like you're literally, you know, and I mean, I'm sure you as an intervention worker understand this, you know, that like treating people with concern and, and like, Giving them attention and concern about how they're doing mm-hmm. is a great way to help to de-escalate people. Yes. Because very often people are freaking out because they feel like nobody cares. And so sure. if you respond to people with care and with concern, you really help to regulate them. You, By showing kindness to people, you help to bring them back into their safe and social nervous system. And it is from that place that you can start to like figure out whatever the issue is, you know? Yeah. But as long as they're in a state of like, I'm in danger. People don't care about me. My needs are not going to be met. Like, it's very hard to have a real conversation about anything. So For sure. And, like, a lot of the time when people are really escalated like that, they'll keep throwing out sort of, like, new things to, like, argue about or new things to, like, disagree about, new things that they can, like, feel very escalated about because they feel really escalated. And, like, it's it's that they, they like, need the social uh, context they're in to reflect um, their emotional state, you know? Um, And, like, oftentimes, like, my job is basically – sort of gently trying to like take those take those like um those toys out of their hands and like put them down right so that I can ask them how they're feeling <laughs> basically and, yeah. and and sort of like start to get to like whatever issue is actually like yeah um, making all this manifest yeah know? and in my opinion like the most important thing about what you're doing there is not it is the it is the act itself like it is not even like the question about what is really going on mm mm-hmm. It's the fact that you care. Yeah. And is, that, and is the that fact that I'll, somebody is showing that. Yeah. And I'll listen and yeah. Exactly. Because people feel like they don't matter. And yeah. so somebody showing that, you know what, you do matter and I'm paying attention to you is like, it's hugely um, regulating. So yeah. And then the other thing that I wanted to talk about in relationship to this um, is the concept of consensus building. And so, like, basically, you know, we definitely are, like, anarchist-leaning, um, and anarchists love consensus. Um, 
And like, you know, consensus is great. And the more that we can have it, the better. Um, I would much prefer to have consensus if that's possible. But like, what even is consensus, right? And the idea, like, to me, consensus and secure attachment are like almost the same thing in a certain way. Because consensus means that I feel safe enough to not have it 100% my way mm-hmm. and that I trust you enough to like meet you part way, mm-hmm. you know, enough that I can say yes to this, even if it wasn't my 100% vision of what I wanted, but I can let go of some of the details because I trust that like the fundamental needs that I have have been fully considered. And so I don't have to insist on things that aren't the most important piece of it, right? Yeah. And I saw David Graeber talk about this in an interview once. Yeah. And it really struck me. And he he talked about how, like, basically, like, in a consensus building process, like, so much of it is kind of just letting shit go. Like, so much of what consensus building is is not insisting upon shit. Effective consensus building. Yeah, effective. Anyway. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. If you actually want to get to the consensus. Yeah. It's actually being, like, you really only speak up and be and like block the consensus if it's something that is fundamental. Like it's something that you're like, no, this is non-negotiable because it is it is about some very important need. Yeah, you know? for sure. And so and yeah. Well Graber Graber's an anthropologist, yeah. right? So he's coming at this from an anthropologist's angle um with with the benefit of a lot of ethnographic work, right? And he's just sort of like, there are people in the world who like, like make all of yeah. their political decisions by, by consensus, consensus yeah. you know? And they don't live in the West. Yeah. <laughs> and they're they're not us, basically, you know? And we're like several hundred or thousand years away from like doing that kind of political, um, or using that kind of strategy for political work. But um, yeah, if, if you go to those people who like make all their political decisions by consensus building, um, yeah, they do not argue incessantly over every single detail because they would all starve to death if they did that. And I mean, the context is, at least like what I was getting from the interview that I watched with him, like the context is it's relationship. They know each other. Yeah. Their lives are wrapped up together. Like totally intertwined. Deeply wrapped up. And so they know that like they have to see these people all the time, right? Like the way that they treat each other matters because it has like ongoing effects And so they really are, there's enough trust. Like there is enough trust there to actually be like, I don't have to insist on everything. Like I can meet you part way, but I will insist on the thing that is like fundamental. That is like really, really important. Yeah. But like everything else I'm so willing to let go. Yeah. Like it doesn't have to be this give and take. You don't need to be like counting, um, counting points and counterpoints, um, in, in each like little subsection or whatever, which actually reminds me of like other stuff that Graeber has said. So this is like a tiny tangent, but like, um, talking about like currency and, and like money basically, and how we like imagine when we talk about like the beginning of currency and the beginning of money, we imagine these sort of like hypothetical societies where people are like, I have three potatoes and you have like one shoe. So like I have to trade like half a potato for a shoe. That doesn't make sense. Like let's invent money, you know? Um, um, but in reality, like all societies like prior to currency and many societies after currency um would have like a common storehouse where they would put all their fucking shoes and potatoes and then like the elder like women of the of the area would like distribute them equitably or whatever you know what i mean and so they trusted that there was always going to be shoes and potatoes right. there, there was no need to be like counting out pennies well this is the thing you and, know? It's, and like, it's the same kind of thing right it comes from it comes from a different mindset of like 
whether you're living in a scarcity mindset and not just mindset, but like scarcity reality where you literally do not trust. You don't trust that you're going to have your needs met. You don't trust the people there are going to value your safety and your needs as much as their own. You don't have secure attachment. You don't have deep and trusting relationships with people where you know that you matter just as much as everybody else there. Right. And ironically, like in some of these cases, sorry, I'm just like an anthropologist, so I'm like nerding out about this. But ironically, in, in, in many of those cases, maybe actually all of those cases of the people that we're talking about here, they actually live in a great deal of scarcity. Right. But like material scarcity, you yeah. know, but relationally, yeah. they do not live necessarily in um, a situation of scarcity. In fact, their relationships are... Um, tend to be anyways, incredibly secure in certain important ways. Yeah, exactly. And so this is the situation. And so if you have, you know, like a fucking collective for an anarchist fair that is going on and on and on and on and on because they can't decide on like, you know, some extremely minor thing and they have to like, you know, so many different like oppression situations need to be discussed. And like now they're talking about, you know, clapping or whatever and like it's all very very intense and nobody is backing down and like nobody's getting anywhere and also everybody is triggered like everybody's upset because everybody feels like you know you're not hearing me you're not seeing me and they're all like we're all in great danger yeah we're all in great and they are in danger you are in danger you're in danger. Like, I'm just like, that's the problem. The reason you're in danger is because you can't trust your friends. The reason you're in danger is because this is a culture that we have accepted that people are disposable, that it's okay to treat people really badly. And like, if we had a culture where we fundamentally valued every human being as essential, as, you know, indispensable and believed that that person's safety and well-being is just as important as everybody else's. And it's funny because the nexus like pretends that that's what they're doing. They use that kind of thing to justify, you know, they say that they're doing all of this to create safety, but then the opposite is what is happening where they've actually created such a, a dynamic of like lack of trust, um, lack of security, lack of stability in relationship that nobody is actually really safe. Yeah. Yeah, we're we're very bad at it. <laughs> like we're very bad at building safety. We're bad at building um, secure attachment. We're bad at building consensus for sure. Yeah. Um. And yeah, I don't know the the nexus. Like whatever. Like in in certain like very real ways. Like you were just saying. Yeah. Like it comes out of the desire to create all those things. But we're like we're we're out of shape with that shit. You know. And this is it's like not working. You know. Especially just like with the way that. I don't know, the way that social media makes everything, like, really crazy and weird, you know? It's like a... Yeah, and I just think, you know, like, the impulse that we see constantly, like, we've talked about it a few times, but, like, in cancel culture, the idea that, like, once somebody has been marked as bad, that everybody should, like, stop being their friend, I'm just, like, that is so... It's very weird. Like, it doesn't have to be that way. And the fact that we've all agreed that it's just obviously true that that should be the case and that like if you remain friends with someone that means that you're co-signing whatever it was that they're accused of yeah <clears throat> that's bizarre yeah you know like in fact people have lo- people have relationships with people that they don't agree with people have relationships with people who are like totally a dick sometimes like it's totally normal and like in the examples that we were just talking about you know where it's like a a community and stuff where people are just like living together and like actually having real relationships with the real people that they see every day yeah you can't just decide that some 
like, fuck that guy. Because you see him every day. Yeah. Like, you have a real relationship with him. So, yeah. like, you might not like him. Like, you have to kill him if you don't want to see him around. Yeah, like, you, <laughs> you have a real relationship with him. Yeah. Like, so you have to see him. And so, like, therefore, working that out becomes a lot more important. And it doesn't mean that you have to like the person. But it means that, like, you guys are in relationship. Yeah, yeah. Totally. So. Totally. Well, it's super interesting shit, man. Um, I think that the left in general could benefit hugely from like a better understanding of all this kind of stuff and, and, um, nervous system literacy too. Um, I hope that it becomes like way more common to understand it. I mean, actually I'm sure that we'll get into it on some point at some point on a later episode, but there's all the stuff like about, um, trauma and addiction too. that like Gabor Mate talks about mm-hmm. Gabor Mate. Like I fucking love his writing so much. Um, but if you want to understand like where a lot of the like really deep misery that we see in the modern West comes from, like people have a pretty good idea of where it comes from. Yeah, you know what I mean? And it has to do with this kind of shit. Yeah. Um, very, very fundamentally. Um, and yeah, like if, if we're trying to like, even apart from all the stuff that we've just been talking about, if we're trying to like plan like policy and like, you know, mm-hmm. policy interventions to make the world a better place. Like we literally need to understand this kind of thing, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. And if we want to build strong political movements that are effective, we fundamentally need to be able to have relationships. Like I'm kind of like, you know, and I say this with love and I say this as a person who fully has lived this life, you know, but I'm like, if we are fighting with our roommates to such an extreme level, all these queers living in collective houses having mental breakdowns about the dishes, you know? And then we're talking about, like, the revolution. Yeah. It's like, we cannot build mass power if we can't even stay friends with our friends for more than, like, a year. Yeah. You know? Like, we need long-term, sustainable, secure relationships, and we need to be able to have them with tons of fucking people. Yeah. Um, you know... Fuck, I forget this guy's name, but I was just, I'll, I'll think of it after and then we'll put it in the show notes, but I was just listening to an interview with this organizer, you know, and he was like, if you're an organizer, you should not be able to walk down your block without being interrupted to say hi to someone like every five seconds, Right. you know, like you should know everybody in your neighborhood. And you sounds sh- stressful. Yeah. It sounds stressful because we're fucking alienated. Also, I don't speak Yiddish. I mean, yeah, <laughs> that's a bit of a different context, but you know, like it's like you should have relationships with the people that live physically in your area, you know, yeah. um, not just people on the internet who have similar identity categories to you. Yeah. And then if you have relationships with people in your fucking neighborhood, that's like where actual political organizing starts because then you can figure out, okay, well, what are the fucking needs that we have? And then how do we meet them? Um, and then also maybe you can like, I don't know, maybe we could band together and build a left. Whoa. (laughs) (laughs) Just a suggestion, you know, just a thought. Yeah, man. It's super real. And like, if you see, like, I don't know, man, just be nice to people. Like if someone's having a bad day and you're nice to them and you're kind to them and you offer that, like, it makes such a huge difference in and of itself. Like it's valuable in and of itself because human beings deserve that. Human beings deserve kindness, but it's also how you build that secure attachment. It's how you build trust. It's how you build real relationships, how you build real communities. And then that is literally where we get political power from. So I'm like, if we want to be effective as leftists, like we have to talk about feelings. We have to talk about people's intense need to belong and to feel loved and important and connected and we can't have 
you know, political movements, which I don't even think the Nexus is a political movement, but it pretends to be. So I'll just call it that, you know, to give it, to speak in their terms. But it's like, if you want to have effective political movements, you cannot have people living in terror and fear and just, you know, being obedient because they're afraid. Like, that's getting you compliance. That's all it's getting you. Yeah, for sure. And it's getting you people who like, on, on some level, even if they're like repressing it, like hate you. Yeah. And fear you. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So. I don't know. I think that there's a lot of like a weird like love hate like kind of uh, dilemma or it's not even the right word but like. Well, I mean like. Yeah. I mean. Like attention, you know. It's interesting. Like so Judith Herman who wrote um, Trauma and Recovery who is the person who. She's the person who first came up with complex PTSD as a diagnosis or like it's not an official diagnosis, but she's the one who who suggested that complex PTSD is different from just like simple PTSD. Yeah. That being abused by the people that you love is much more like damaging than than an isolated incident of being abused, you know, by a stranger or something. Yeah. Or having some other kind of traumatic experience. But like one of in that early in that early text like one of the things that distinguishes complex PTSD from other types of trauma is ambivalent feelings towards the person who abused you because it is normal in most cases if somebody just like came up and assaulted you to feel sort of uncomplicated anger yeah, yeah, towards that person yeah. right whereas if the person that did this to you is someone that you loved and 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 in to some degree trusted or were trying to trust you know of course that anger is probably going to be there on some kind of level because it's a normal human reaction, but it's going to be totally warped by this disorganized attachment, right? Totally. And so what often happens with people with disorganized attachment or with complex trauma is that the anger that should go outward towards the person who hurt you is boomerangs back inwards. Mm. And that's why you see a lot of like self-destructive behavior from people with complex trauma because Instead of being mad at the person for abusing them, they're mad at themselves for being bad. Right. Um, right. Because they they believe that they created the situation by not following the rules. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think we're going to wrap it up there. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah. It's been a it's been a heavy episode, but uh, I mean, I talk about this stuff all the time. This is like my bread and butter, <laughs> um, and like it's not you know the usual stuff that we talk about on the podcast. But like I said, I'm going to be trying to bring more of it in. But if people are interested in these topics, like I will try to put some resources in the show notes um, for people about some of the stuff that we've been talking about. But you can also check out my work. Um, like my website, clementinemorgan.com is where you can buy my writing. And I've also been doing workshops on these topics. So if you were listening to this and you're like, damn, holy fuck, I'm disorganized, or you were like, damn, holy fuck, I'm anxious, preoccupied, and my partner's avoidant. Um, a classic combo. <laughs> I've got a workshop for that. So you can, um, I'm on Crowdcast, but you can find the link on my website and just click on workshops and you can see the workshops that I do because my other life is a trauma educator. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, we'll just briefly remind people about the Q&A we're doing. You can check it out. Uh, just go on our Patreon. Um, it's going to be on June 21st at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Um, and, uh, yeah, we have a – you can email us, um, fucking canceled at gmail.com. There's no you in fucking because Gmail wouldn't let us, and there's two L's and canceled because we're Canadian. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks, guys. See you next time. See you next time. <laughs>